since taking office, he has become the worst version of himself. He is capable of behaving kindly, but he is not kind. He is capable of committing acts of generosity, but he is not generous. He is capable of being loyal, but he is fundamentally disloyal. That was Michael Cohen unloading on his former boss, Donald Trump, before the House Oversight Committee this week. It was riveting testimony in which the president's longtime lawyer and personal fixer described him as a racist, a con man, and a cheat. Cohen also presented tantalizing new evidence of Trump's complicity in federal crimes while in office, displaying a copy of checks personally signed by the president, reimbursing him for hush money payments to a porn star, a transaction that federal prosecutors have determined was a violation of campaign finance laws and for which Cohen himself has pled guilty. There was more. Cohen asserted that Trump was personally informed by his longtime political advisor, Roger Stone, about the imminent release of damaging Democratic emails by WikiLeaks, and that Trump was intensely interested in efforts to negotiate a Trump Tower in Moscow during the 2016 presidential campaign, while telling the public he had no business interests in Russia. How damaging was Cohen's testimony? And where do the multiple investigations into his conduct by federal prosecutors, state attorneys generals, and by House committees go from here? We'll discuss with one of Cohen's inquisitors on the House Oversight Committee on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So that was quite the hearing with Michael Cohen this week. Uh, you know, hard to come up with an analogy. Well, everyone's than, saying the, the, the biggest, most dramatic hearing since John since Dean. John Dean, yes. And I have to say, there was a lot of drama, a lot of color. It was fascinating, but not Dean-like revelations for the most part. No, there was not the smoking gun conversations that were outlined, such as, you know, or, or memorable lines, cancer on the presidency. But I will say one thing, the thing that was so striking to me was actually not so much on the investigations, but the assault on Donald Trump's character, right. particularly when he talked about his racism. One of the things that was powerful about his testimony was the narrative and the anecdotes, right. uh, because mostly we see these pleadings and these indictments that, you know, dry legal language. This was very colorful and very human. And I think that what was in some ways most memorable to me would be that line where Cohen talks about driving through the streets of Chicago, some impoverished neighborhood of Chicago, and uh, Trump saying, according to Cohen, only blacks live in places like this. Right. Although, um, do you think that surprised people? It's not surprised. Well, but part of the reason it's powerful is because is precisely because it doesn't surprise people. It reinforces the perceptions that a lot of people already have. But from someone who was extremely close to him, in that sense, I think it resonates and people think that it's credible. But also just the idea that someone so close to this president for so long is talking about 
an American president in those terms. You know, maybe it's all baked in, we're so polarized that it doesn't have any impact. But I have to say that uh, just in pure human terms, it was those parts of his testimony that I think are going to stay with me. Right, right. Now, the big headlines from the hearing, of course, were what Cohen had to say about uh, Trump Tower Moscow, the president repeatedly asking him on a half dozen occasions, how's it going in Russia, i.e. Cohen's efforts to negotiate a Trump Tower Moscow deal during the campaign while Trump was running for president and telling the public he had no business in Russia. The WikiLeaks conversation with Roger Stone, in which Roger Stone is telling him WikiLeaks is about to uh, dump Democratic emails. And that he's just spoken to Julian Assange, which, of course, is not something that Bob Mueller but, has... Right. Uh, so it does raise a question, sorry, yeah. was was Stone just bullshitting Trump Roger there? Stone bullshitting? Just as, Come on. Just as he was bullshitting everybody else. <laughs> so, you know, we don't know how far that goes. Certainly the campaign finance violations, the checks personally signed by Trump reimbursing Cohen for the payments to the, to the porn star Stormy Daniels. And, and, and he right. and Michael Cohen, for the very first time he's in the Oval Office, right. Trump telling him, yeah. you're going to get your money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Your hush money. Right. Don't worry right. about right. it. Right. Which was not initially disclosed. His debt to Cohen, by the way, was not initially disclosed on his right. financial disclosure right. form. And I think uh, right. Chairman Cummings made a point right. of that because yeah. that could be a way of framing this other than payoffs of hush money for to a porn star, Absolutely. but failure to disclose a debt to your but there are other, another couple of other uh, revelations that have not gotten. Yeah, yeah, a couple of nuggets which I loved. Uh, the Trump Foundation. Uh, Trump sees a painting, a portrait of himself at a Hamptons art auction, which he uh, really uh, likes. So he has a fake straw bidder. His friend uh, Stuart Rar, a pharmaceutical executive and noted Playboy, bid sixty thousand dollars for the portrait. Then Trump has the Trump Foundation, his tax-exempt charity, buy the portrait and then he takes it for himself a clear abuse of a a charitable foundation self-dealing I think self-dealing in and of itself and then the questions about his tax returns there was questioning of Cohen saying if he knew anything about why the president hadn't uh, released his tax returns and Cohen says well at one point Trump told him well I don't want to release them because if I do I'll have all these tax experts from think tanks ripping through them and then uh I'll end up with an audit and I'll have to pay penalties. Now, of course, he'd been telling the public he was under audit. That was the reason that he hadn't released the tax returns. But the one that leapt out at me was Cohen testifies that uh, in 2008, Trump shows him his 2008 tax return in which he'd gotten a $10 million IRS tax refund. And then Trump says, can you believe they were so stupid at the government to give someone like me a big fat refund like that? It does raise the question. That's the first time we've heard this. And it does raise the question if the real reason he hasn't been releasing his tax returns is because he's been getting refunds from the government. And uh, that wouldn't look so well uh, with the uh, voting public during the election. Anyway, it was uh, a tantalizing new clue. But we've got lots more to talk about.
now we've got as our guest somebody uniquely situated to talk about Michael Cohen's testimony, Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland. Raskin is a member of the House Oversight Committee in which uh, Cohen was testifying yesterday and House Judiciary as well. Congressman, welcome to Skullduggery. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, Michael and Danny Clydman, both of you guys. A lot to unpack from uh, Cohen's uh, testimony yesterday, but I want to start out with a line that you had, which has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, one of the great zingers from yesterday. Let's listen to it and uh, we can talk about it. Mr. Raskin. Mr. Cohen, thank you for your composure today. Our colleagues are not upset because you lied to Congress for the president. They're upset because you stopped lying to Congress for the president. Great line. Did you come up with that on the fly or had you thought about that before? Well, the whole thing had been bugging me so much because all they were talking about as I sat there for two hours was his being a liar. Of course, what he lied about was Donald Trump's involvement in the Moscow Tower project and how long he stayed involved in that even during the campaign. He was lying for the president. They didn't mention that. They didn't mention all of the other lies he told for the president because they didn't care about that. In other words, it's okay if you lie for the president, but if you stop lying for the president, then suddenly you're a renegade and an apostate from the one true religion of Donald Trump. So, look, there was so much that was covered from Moscow Tower Project, from the Trump Tower Project, WikiLeaks, the campaign finance violations. What was your principal takeaway from Michael Cohen's testimony? Well, there were some powerful and um, emotional truths that were told yesterday. And I think the most searing epiphany members should have had is, and my Republican colleague should have had is when he said, look, I was where you guys sit today. I was the one heckling and harassing and trying to drown out anybody who spoke against Donald Trump, including Republicans. And Michael Cohen is one. He's, I think, the deputy finance chair of the Republican National Committee. He said, I was doing what you were doing. I'm part of the problem. And my the sorrowful fate of going off to prison could be your destiny if you guys don't clean up your act. And they are behaving like members of a religious cult right now. So I, I thought that that was a kind of a powerful icebreaker. So they're sort of on the road to perdition in the way that he was. And that's an interesting kind of human point, an emotional point, as you put it. But at the end of the day, I guess the question is, Did Democrats move the needle in terms of uh, the investigations uh, into Donald Trump, into his legal situation, and into the question of whether impeachment is a probability? Well, look, we're just setting the table right now for a whole bunch of different lines of potential legislative inquiry. You know, one of the things that came up yesterday was that Trump's lawyers were directly involved in the false testimony that Cohen gave to Congress. That's something that needs to be explored by somebody. We continue to have the problem of these uh, hush money campaign finance violations, which are very serious when you circumvent the central campaign finance laws of the country in order to purchase silence from the mistresses. There were tantalizing hints about tax fraud, about real estate fraud, about the inflation of the values of property. So there's a lot going on there. The big picture is that we have a leader of the executive branch of the United States of America who's been running uh, his business, his family, his campaign, and now the government of the United States, like a money-making operation for one guy and his family and his business. And that produces 
a whole bunch of reverberations constitutionally, statutorily across the country and here in Congress, obviously. And we're just starting to get a hold of it. I, you know, that, that was our basically our first meaningful oversight hearing that we've had with uh, a refugee from the Trump administration. And, you know, what I, I liken it to is coming upon uh, an 88 car pileup on the highway. I mean, where do you begin to deal with this stuff? And we're just sorting it out. Well, that is a good question. Where do you begin? Because the Cohen testimony was all over the map, and there were lots of things, lots of threads that he put out there. But you can't do everything, and you can't keep the public's attention on everything. you got to figure out where you want to drill down, where you actually think you can you know, score some significant points. So of the matters that came up yesterday, where do you start? What's your first number one priority for where you want to pursue? Well, of course, the, you know, we're not in the business of point scoring here. I mean, we're in the business of trying to get the people's business done. And, you know, I've said from the beginning, we've got to be on offense and on defense. So this week is a great example. This week, we tried to checkmate the president in his unlawful deployment of the emergency powers. Right. We passed the expansion of the universal criminal mental background check for firearm purchases, closing the internet loophole, closing the private show loophole. We did environmental legislation. We closed the Charleston loophole, a separate problem in the gun law. So we're making progress on the stuff we campaigned on at the same time that we're trying to defend the Constitution and the rule of law through these investigations into what's going on. Now, on that side of things, I believe that the people have a right to know and Congress has a responsibility to guarantee that there are not crimes taking place in the White House and in the executive branch of government. So I think where there is evidence of crimes, we got to follow it and we got to okay, go but, after but, it. But, now, but, I'm not the chairman of the committee, so I can't. down on yeah. which, from what you heard, Trump Tower Moscow, WikiLeaks, campaign finance, where do you want to drill down first? Well, the first thing you got to understand is for, I'm not the chairman of the Oversight Committee, and we have multiple committees of separate but overlapping jurisdiction in different ways. So some of the things that came up yesterday, I think, are going to be pursued. I hope they will be pursued in any event in the Intelligence Committee, such as what was the involvement of White House lawyers or the president's personal lawyers in doctoring Michael Cohen's testimony which led to his perjury conviction. Were there other people involved in that? That's an obvious one. It's clean. It's simple. Why didn't and you ask about that when you had the chance? I did. I don't know yeah. if you, you saw no, it. But I, I saw, but... Yeah. Yeah, I then then my time ran out. Five minutes is not a long out. time. Nobody followed How up. How much time do we have today? We have 30 minutes? Yeah. Okay, that's six times <laughs> as much time as I had yesterday to question Michael Cohen. Right. Actually, uh, Peter Welch followed up on it, and then uh, yeah. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez followed up on that. So we were able to tease it out more, and I think there's enough for the Intelligence well, Committee to go on. Based on Michael Cohen's testimony, at this point, do you believe that Donald Trump directed Michael Cohen to lie before the Intelligence Committee about the month? Well, that's Mos why we want to Moscow, find out about Trump the lawyers. I mean, it'd be very easy to, to look at the first draft of the testimony, which Michael Cohen wrote, and then look at the final draft after the intervention of Trump's legal team. I think that would give us a pretty good sense of it. But it is a, uh, a subtle question. As Cohen was saying yesterday, a lot of what takes place in 
The White House is like what takes place in the mafia. You know, you know what the Godfather wants you to do. You may not be specifically told, but it's in the air. It's what the lieutenants are communicating, and it's through a wink and a nod. And so we're dealing with some of that. On the other hand, Michael Cohen showed up with canceled checks directly from the president in terms of the hush money payoffs. And he had other documentary evidence there of everything he was talking about. I think that violating certainly the norms of civility, as he kept saying, but also the laws of the country is such a standard operating procedure in the White House that they didn't even notice the paper trails they were leaving. What about some of these new lines of inquiry that you alluded to uh, at the outset? It sounds like you mentioned tax fraud, inflating assets. I think that might have been insurance fraud, which is something that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez brought up. Which of those kind of really caught your attention and do you think should be pursued aggressively? Well, I tell you, the ones that interest me the most are the ones where we're going to be able to connect the president's wrongdoing to other patterns of criminality in society that will allow us to improve the law, to stop it. I mean, Donald Trump has had all the tricks. You know, he has figured out how to cook the books and how to, you know, inflate the numbers when he needs to inflate them and deflate them when he wants to deflate them and so on. I don't think it should just be about Donald Trump. It should be about what we can learn about how predatory members of his class are able to operate under the laws as they exist today. That way, we're doing legal and congressional oversight duty at the same time that we're figuring out, well, what's the character of the operation in the White House now? All right. All this begs the question that I'm sure many of your constituents ask you all the time, and that is impeachment. You're on the Judiciary Committee. It is the panel that can initiate impeachment proceedings. Did you hear anything at the Cohen testimony that moves the needle on whether you want to initiate impeachment proceedings against the president? Well, but I think impeachment's an enormously complex thing. It's an enormously important thing, too, because it is the principal means of congressional and popular self-defense against a president who insists upon acting like a king and trampling the laws of the country and the constitution of the country. So I take it extremely seriously. Obviously, everything that we're doing in terms of our comprehensive oversight duties is going to be relevant to any impeachment investigation that were to occur if one is to occur, because the oversight responsibility is broader than impeachment. Impeachment is subsumed within it. I mean, you move over to impeachment if you're finding really egregious assaults on the character of the republic itself. Have you heard that yet? Well, I think we're moving in that direction. You know, certainly let's start with the, the metric of what the Republicans impeached Bill Clinton on. They impeached Bill Clinton for telling one lie about a private act of sex. Right. That was basically it. That was the gravamen of the complaint, as we say in the law. One lie and then, uh, you know, an obstruction of justice charge that's drawn from that lie. Well, we're way beyond that. Well, let's uh, let's just uh, dissect this. The one criminal act the president has been implicated on by Cohen is campaign finance violations to conceal a sexual act exactly with a consensual adult exactly um so is that enough 
to on the Republican standard, it's more than enough. No, but under your standard, well, no, on my standards, standard. no. No, so it is right. not enough. That, to that alone with. is not enough. In other words, right. if Donald Trump were the purest Boy Scout in the world, but what he did was he used uh, campaign finance contributions and in such a way as to bury these stories, I would say, no, that's more like what Bill Clinton did, which I did not think was an impeachable offense. Why? Not because it wasn't a crime. His perjury was a crime, but because it was not a crime that went to the character of the republic. In other words, it was not threatening the democracy. But we heard a lot more than just about the campaign finance violations. And there are other things that have gone on. I mean, to me, the emoluments clause issues take precedence over everything that we heard about yesterday. And I don't think Michael Cohen knows the first thing about the uh, emoluments clause issues, you know, because he wasn't a lawyer here in Washington. He doesn't know most of what's been taking place in the presidency. Right. I mean, he was still covering up from various uh, crimes and skullduggery from the campaign period. Right. Right. And actually, we discussed the emoluments uh, in our last episode of Skullduggery. It's interesting. I think uh, just this week, the Kuwaiti embassy had its National Day celebration at uh, the Trump Hotel. The third time it's done so since well, uh, Donald Trump les bon won the election. You know? <laughs> I, look, the, um, the, the emoluments clause issues are central to this. And right. I think they're continuous with what we heard about yesterday. What he told us was that during the campaign, Donald Trump saw it as the greatest money-making opportunity of all time. He's, I think he said, the greatest infomercial ever. Yeah. And Donald Trump's psyche did not turn when he became president. He just shifted it over to the presidency. And where is the first place you can make money, as the founders of our Constitution knew? You can make it from foreign powers that want to buy influence with the United States of America. And so the Trump Hotel is open for business. The Office Tower, open for business. All of the golf clubs. And what do you know? Millions of dollars are flowing in from Kuwait, from Saudi Arabia, from, you know, you name it. Governments By the way, from just all over one the more beat on that. Yeah. They did, the Trump uh, organization did just this week return, I think it was $191,000 in profits they said they earned from foreign governments to uh, yes. the U.S. Well, they, they returned too little and they protested a little too much. I mean, yeah. if there's nothing wrong with what they're doing, they don't have to put a penny in. And you know, Donald Trump wouldn't put anything in if he didn't have to. Right. So uh, I, I fear like they've uh, kind of given the game away by saying, oh, well, here's a couple hundred thousand dollars. The Constitution establishes a categorical prohibition on a president collecting any money from a foreign prince, king, or government, period. It doesn't say, and you can give some back out of the graciousness of your heart. What the legal precedent that's been established is the president has got to go to Congress and say, can I accept this or not? Because the Monuments Clause says you can't accept money from foreign powers without the consent of Congress. It's up to Congress to determine whether he can keep it. It's not up to him to sort it out and say, oh, of these millions of dollars I've collected, I'm going to write a check for $200,000 to the Treasury. So the money-making operation has continued, but now it's being operated out of the Oval Office instead of out of Trump Tower or if, wherever they if were running Trump the campaign. If Trump had cut his ties from his businesses, then this wouldn't be an issue, right? I mean, if he had cut his ties from his businesses and well, that's a complicated question, actually. Even if he had put it into blind trust and he didn't know anything about it, that might clear up all of the ethical issues. That is the the ethics issues that bear down on the executive branch. But I'm not sure that it would clear up the constitutional issues. I think it makes his argument stronger. But in any event, as we know, 
he didn't do that. He knows precisely where the money is coming but, from. And all of these governments are bragging about it and saying, oh, you know, it's so wonderful to be able to support the president and his family in this I mean, way. You said the Monuments Clause, the language is pretty cut and dry, but it hasn't really been tested. It's being tested now yeah. for no the first time. No president has come close to doing what this right. president has done. I mean, the other presidents come back from a foreign trip and somebody gives them cufflinks or a chess set or something and they turn it right over to Congress and they say, can I keep this? Or, you know, sometimes... Congress says, okay. Other times Congress says, no, it goes to the State Department. But nobody's seen anything like this, millions of dollars coming from... But I just wonder, I mean, given the sort of legal uncertainties, is this really where you think Trump is most vulnerable in terms of his own legal situation? I think it's the, the place where we need to begin, because I think it exposes the Achilles heel of this administration, which is it began as a money-making operation, and it has never ceased to be a money-making operation. You know, I read every book that comes out about the Trump White House, and some people say he's a Russian agent. Some people say he's a Russian asset. I think it's far more likely he's just an asset than an agent because he's not driven by any ideological fervor, and he's not driven by any love of a foreign country or government or anybody other than himself, but he is interested in making as much money as possible. That's what kept him working on the Trump Tower deal all the way through the summer, which is why they had to lie about it when Michael Cohen came to testify. Well, let me ask you a political question, because you've been talking about this for a long time, but the conversation is not really about emoluments, and just as kind of a political matter, do you think that's a mistake for Democrats? Not, I mean, because when you yeah. talk about emoluments, you're really talking about corruption, basically. Well, it, right? we should call it the anti-bribery provision. A lot of people are afraid because it's a what four-syllable word emolument. You know, <laughs> I uh, the story I like to tell people to get yeah. people to remember it is I went to the women's march with my kids, and on the way back, my youngest daughter Tabitha said, "Dad, what did you think?" I said, "It's like the." greatest political event of my life. It was amazing. She said, you had no criticism. I said, actually, I wish there had been some chance about the emoluments clause. So Tabitha <laughs> says, dad, nothing rhymes with the emoluments clause. So kind of put me have to the test. I said, on that? well, I said, how about this? Stop Trump, stop Pence, impeach them for emoluments. <laughs> it's got a nice cadence. Hey, to hey, it, ho, so. ho, emoluments <laughs> have got to go. <laughs> well, okay. th th that's a little routine. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. But anyway, so uh, it, I think people have to learn what the emoluments clause is. But, uh, you know, when the country first started, the capital, wherever it was, it could have been D.C., Philadelphia, New York. It was crawling with foreign spies and everybody wanted to get their hooks into the government of the United States. And so the founder said we need 100 percent undivided loyalty to the people of the country. And the way we're going to establish that is say you can't accept anything. The smallest trinket, the smallest gift, no money, no payments, nothing from foreign government without going to Congress first. And we should point out uh, that the congressman is also a constitutional law professor, so knows something about the Constitution. Look, this is something that is now before the courts. Judge Massetti of uh, Maryland has given the great green light for the uh, lawsuit uh, brought by the Maryland Attorney General and the D.C. Attorney General to go forward. Do you wait for the courts to resolve this, or you as a member and your no, fellow no. members of the Judiciary Committee? Um, no, we cannot wait for the, what the, are you going to do? Look, the, the courts are not going to 
remove an unfit president and the courts are not going to be able no but they to, can rule on the constitutionality the of what the president they could is but doing. The, the most you could ever imagine a court saying here is the president must go to congress to ask for its consent at this point right. or to declare these mm-hmm. emoluments i would think i mean maybe maybe judge massetti would say these are emoluments they must be returned or be given to the treasury. His ruling is under appeal now. And I know, and so they they will tie it up. Look, Congress is the branch that represents the people. And uh, nobody loves Nancy Pelosi more than me, but she made a a speech on the floor, which I disagreed with, where she said, the president's got to remember we're a co-equal branch of government. We are not a co-equal branch of government. We are the dominant and primary branch of government. We are the representatives of the people. We are the lawmaking power. If you read Article 1, it goes on for pages with Congress's power, and most of the others are left to the states. And then you look at Article 2 with the president, and there's a few lines which says he is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, and he's the commander of of the armed forces in time of actual insurrection or war. That's it. We've got to restore the primacy of the Okay, so if that's the case, why are you waiting for an executive branch official, i.e. Robert Mueller, to tell you what Trump did or did not do with Russia? Why aren't you taking the initiative as the primary branch of government to delve into the Russia case yourself? Why are you waiting for Mueller? Michael, forgive me, but we've been in office for less than three months in the majority here, and they shut the government down for more than half of that, okay? So we're doing whatever we can to set it right. We just had our first hearing with an escapee from the (laughs) Donald Trump cult yesterday (laughs) when Michael Cohen arrived. So we're just beginning to lift up the rocks to see what's under there, to see if we can restore democracy. But I'm with you. I am impatient for that process because we are Congress and we must act. And, you know, I tell all my colleagues who are running for president, there's like dozens and dozens of them, don't run for president. (laughs) Stay here. Let's fight for our democracy. Let me ask you this, Congressman, because clearly I think you think Wednesday's hearing was was pretty effective that, that it revealed a lot of things, some new things. And yet it's the only it's been the only hearing on uh, any of these issues with only a fact, public hearing pub, that's that's been public. Right. I mean, not a single one has been in, in terms of like a major significant yes. fact witness. Well, look, what, what do you think of your your colleagues in the House Intelligence Committee, uh, Adam Schiff, uh, the Senate Intelligence mm-hmm. Committee, who've done multiple hearings already? Even Democrats secretly. As we sit right now, Adam Schiff is having a closed-door hearing on Russia, Why is it, which means you can't even learn what's being yeah. said. You don't have the clearance to know what Cohen is saying about Russia well, th- before the Intelligence Committee. That's the Intelligence Committee. Okay? Yeah, and but your judiciary, if there is criminal acts, if there were criminal acts done by the president, it's your responsibility to do something about it. And yes. there's key testimony going on right now behind closed doors that you are not even privy to. This is true. But, you know, all, all in due you? time, all in due time. I mean, this is a, a statement of the gravity of our situation. Look, if you read the books as I do, you probably know the author. I've not met him. His name is Craig Unger, but he's written an exceptional (laughs) book called House of Trump, House of Putin about the president. There's another one. that Isikoff noticed. By the way, we're sitting here in your office. Isikoff noticed that you had his book. Yeah. Uh, And he's like, like, well, yours yours came out a while ago now, Michael. I mean, (laughs) a lot has come out since then. I love your book, but the most recent one I found was Unger. Right. And, And his book is targets the relationship between Trump and the Russian mob. And that begins not abroad, but in America, when none of the banks will any longer make loans to the multiply bankrupt Donald Trump. So 
he, what does he do? He turns to the Russian mob and suddenly all of the oligarchs and all of this money from Russia is pouring into buy his condos in Florida and office tower offices, you know, in, in uh, New York and so on. And suddenly Russian money has revived the Donald Trump organization. And, you know, Unger calls it perhaps the greatest active measure intelligence operation in history. I think you called it something like that too, Michael. But I mean, from Putin's perspective, this was a great opportunity. So why is the intelligence committee all over this? Because Vladimir Putin was all over it. They Right. found a likely dupe in Donald Trump because they figured out exactly what his pressure points were, what he liked. He liked being flattered. He's a vain man. He liked young, pretty women. He liked all of the trappings of power and the trappings of glamour. And, you know, he liked sycophancy. And so they played him like a drum. And so I don't think it was necessarily an ideological thing on the president's part, but he got caught up with some very bad actors. And, you know, the key to figuring out what he's going to do in terms of foreign policy is what is Vladimir Putin's position? If it's, you know, for all of the right wing extreme nationalists in Europe, if it's for Orban in Hungary, if it's for Le Pen in France, if it's for Duterte in the Philippines, all of the, you know, Putin's buddies, then they're Trump's buddies too, right? And so they've got something on him or there's some relationship there. There's something going on. I don't know what's happening in the intelligence committee. I'd like to find it out. And my proclivity is with yours, Michael, which is that this is a democracy and the people have a right to know. And so we can't keep things secret forever and we can't keep them secret for much longer. The people need to know about what actually has taken place with the president and these foreign operators. In the testimony yesterday on the Russia stuff, and then I want to move on to some other issues, but WikiLeaks testimony, uh, the the speaker phone, Roger Stone calls Trump while uh, Cohen is in the office there. This is July of 2016. Trump puts him on speaker. And according to Cohen's testimony, Stone tells him that he's just gotten off the phone with Julian Assange. And there's going to be, uh, in a couple of days, a release of damaging emails that WikiLeaks leaks is going to dump, which is what happened. Do you believe that account? And if so, what does it tell you? Well, it, it sounded credible. You know, I'm not sure that there's anything criminal revealed in just the four corners of that vignette. I mean, you would have to have the whole context to understand whether, in fact, there was some kind of cooperation with an operation to conduct cyber espionage and surveillance of the DNC and to break into the computers and then to turn them over to WikiLeaks as the... None of which has been charged channel. by Mueller, by the way. He's, yeah. uh, he's indicted Stone, but not for any direct communications with WikiLeaks and yeah. not for playing any part that, in that, the in, Right, and in there the was hack nothing that Michael emails. Cohen suggested yesterday saying that Trump knew that the Russians were... That that's right. where the email He also came said from. he had no direct evidence of collusion. Yeah, which to me just enhances the credibility of Michael Cohen as a witness. I mean, it's not like he was just out to savage Trump. I mean, Trump was even praising him today to say, oh, he lied about everything else, but he told the truth about this one thing, which is he didn't know anything about a Russia connection, right? right. But uh, Cohen was an extremely credible witness. He has no incentive to lie, of course. And uh, everything he said was coherent. And there's no reason he would know about that other stuff necessarily. He said he had suspicions that other people within the Trump camp had Russian 
connections and were working that way. And clearly, people like Michael Flynn and Manafort were still, you know, up to their neck in involvement with Ukrainian and Russian emissaries and agents. So the milieu surrounded the president, you know, regardless of whether or not he was directly involved. But we'll have to see. We just don't know. But before we move on from Russia, let me just ask you one more question that also has to do with impeachment, because you have been quoted in the past. This was after the BuzzFeed story came out, which said that Donald Trump directed Michael Cohen to lie before the House Intelligence Committee about the Moscow Trump Tower deal. And you said, if true, then we could be squarely in impeachment territory. Absolutely. To those effects. So now what we know is Cohen said that it wasn't explicit, it was implicit, it was coded language, but you also alluded to the fact that uh, the possibility that Trump's lawyers may have doctored his... uh, Edited, I think, was the word that Cohen used. But you used doctored, I think. (laughs) Uh, So given the new testimony, given the questions about the BuzzFeed story, but now this new testimony from Michael Cohen, do you still think we would be squarely in impeachment territory? Well, let's go back to the original point so we can establish the polls here. I mean, if it were, if we had it dead to rights that the president directed Michael Cohen to lie to Congress, then absolutely. And I think if you look at the impeachment articles that have been brought against pretty much every president who's ever been the subject of them, including Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton, it's all been about perjury, lying to Congress, obstruction of justice, and that would put us squarely within what's come before. Obviously, you know, if you go from the president to the president's lawyers, if you go from directing him to lie to helping him edit or tailor his statement, obviously, these are all refinements which weaken the central claim. But nonetheless, I think there's a lot of moral force there that if basically what's happening is the president is coaching someone or directly or indirectly coaching someone to lie to Congress in order to protect his hide, then, yeah, that's something that is a a pretty naked violation of the rules of our constitutional democracy and our ability to proceed as rule of law. But I go back to that point I was making about the primacy of Congress. I mean, it, it seems like, you know, a lot of the presumption of questions today is like, well, you haven't proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the president did this or this or this or that. Look, the president's job is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed for Congress. That's his job. His job is not to be the best criminal defendant or suspect he can be. I mean, we're, we're entitled to a real president who's going to go out and do the work of the American people. So we want to see that there's a president who is not sabotaging our laws like the Affordable Care Act, not circumventing the will of Congress as he's doing at the border, basically by giving us the finger after we told him, no, we're not appropriating money for that uh, stupid medieval purpose of building a border wall. Is there a broader abuse of power article of impeachment here that throws in the emergency, national emergency declaration to build the wall, that throws in emoluments, that throws in a bunch of other steps the president has taken that would fall under that category of abusing his office? Well, this is the profound question, because obviously we don't want to impeach people for policy differences, because there are legitimate policy differences between the legislative and executive branch. But on the other hand, there are presidents who do set themselves at war against the implementation of the laws. And I do think that that is something that puts you in impeachment territory. But 
this president uh, who shatters so many precedents and norms poses some difficult problems for us. I mean, what happens if you get a president who managed to get, manages to get himself elected just with the goal of making as much money as possible, making as many deals as possible, doesn't care about the public interest at all, breaks lots of things, is a, a racist, is a, is a cheat, is a fraud, as we heard yesterday, but maybe that's all. Well, should, do you allow a president like that to stay in office? I mean, that's the best argument well, that can be made for answer? Trump. What's the answer? I don't know. That, I mean, I, I'm not saying that's what the president is because I think it goes beyond that, but that's the best argument for him. Basically, let him make as much money as he can and get his name out there and you know continue to do the golf courses and go to Mar-a-Lago and let's just try to minimize the damage. But you can't you couldn't invoke the 25th amendment for any of that kind of conduct, right? Which well, is something that you know a lot about. Yes, yeah, so the the 25th amendment as we've discussed before I think raises a whole different set of questions, which is what if you have a president of the United States who actually is not fit to discharge the powers and duties of office as set forth by the 25th Amendment, which says the vice president and a majority of the cabinet or the vice president and a majority of Congress can decide that the powers need to be transferred to the vice president, at least temporarily. Well, this president raises that question, too, because his behavior has raised alarms, not along partisan lines. I mean, all of these books tell you, and we've heard recently about, you know, high-ranking officials in the Justice Department raising the question of the 25th Amendment, which they somehow want to make a criminal activity. The whole purpose of the 25th Amendment is that people should talk about it. I mean, not only do they have a First Amendment right to talk about the 25th Amendment, they've got a 25th Amendment right to talk about the 25th Amendment. <laughs> That's what it's contemplated to do. Spoken right. like a true constitutional scholar. <laughs> and we should point out that the congressman has a bill, or you did have a bill I that do. you introduced last session yes. to create a, a body within Congress that can initiate the 25th Amendment. And that's the body that's contemplated by the language of the 25th Amendment itself, which right. says it's either the vice president and the cabinet. But still or, only with the concurrence of the vice president. Correct. So it would be set up. And actually, one of the reasons for it, if you go back and you look at what Birch Bay and Bobby Kennedy and the architects of the 25th Amendment were saying, they envision a situation where the president would intimidate the cabinet and prevent them from determining that there was a 25th Amendment crisis. And they said, that's why we need to let the other branch, let the legislative branch have its own body. And this was one of the first things I did when I got elected. I called over to the Library of Congress and I said, where's the body that was set up under the 25th Amendment? And they called me back that afternoon and they said, it's never been set up. We and never that's what your legislation would do. And that's what it does. It doesn't mention Donald Trump by name. It's not about him. It's for him and every other president. It sets up a body that would be there in the event that the president is either physically or mentally indisposed to be able to discharge the powers and duties. By the way, office. do you think a sitting president can be indicted uh, while in office? Yes. This is something that uh, we've talked a lot about on this podcast. Yes, indeed. Well, if the president murdered somebody, are we saying he couldn't be indicted? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. I think it, it, it was all complete accident and happenstance that this view emerged within the Department of Justice that the president couldn't be indicted. Are you going to see the Mueller report? I believe that every American citizen will see the Mueller report. When? I don't know. Hey, I mean, <laughs> I, I've been hearing it's next week for about the last year and a half, you know? Right, right. Uh, and uh, is you're on the Judiciary Committee. Is there a next step by the, the Judiciary Committee? either on Russia or on any of the legal issues facing the president? Again, that's not a committee that I chair, so I, I, I can't say exactly 
what Chairman Nadler's got in mind. But I, I, you know, um, I know that we are setting ourselves up to undertake very serious investigations into obstruction of justice and abuse of power and everything that's been taking place. I, you know, Jerry Nadler is somebody who loves the rule of law, and I think everybody in that committee is really committed to vindicate our Constitution. Let me ask you a, a political question totally unrelated to all this. A lot is going on within the Democratic Party. You are a well-known as a progressive to the left in the spectrum of the party. And I want to read you something that Richard Cohen wrote in the Washington Post this week about what he was seeing in the drift of the Democratic Party, particularly from some of your new younger members who do seem to be having some influence on the uh, on the presidential race coming up. And here's what Cohen wrote. I don't quite know what a handbasket is, but the Democratic Party is in one headed toward electoral hell with its talk of socialism and reparations. Given a Republican incumbent who has never exceeded 50% in the Gallup poll, the party is nonetheless determined to give Donald Trump a fair shot at re-election by sabotaging itself. In fact, it's veering so far to the left that it could lose an election in 1950s Bulgaria. Do you agree? But I'm no expert on 1950s Bulgaria, but <laughs> you're not. That, 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 that sounds. That's why we had you. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. It it sounds like the the kind of uh, hyperbolic pronouncement that columnists are entitled as part of right. Their but all right, take that line gift, away. The talk uh, about socialism and reparations is what he was referring. Well, look. To. For the, let's start with socialism. The Republicans have denounced as socialist almost every major policy achievement that Democrats have created over the last century. When the Interstate Commerce Commission was created, when the Federal Trade Commission was created, when the National Labor Relations Act was passed, when the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed, when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, when the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed, when Social Security was passed, Medicare, Medicaid, at every point, the right wing in America said, this is socialism. This is Bolshevism. This is communism, whatever. So, I mean, that's going to happen regardless. I don't think that them crying socialism is going to scare anybody off of supporting, for example, universal health care, which dozens of countries around the world have, which, you know, many have achieved sweepingly better results than American healthcare, like in Canada or in the Scandinavian countries than us. So, you know, that, that's an old game and nobody's going to fall for that. What was the other thing? Other uh, than reparations. Reparations. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, obviously Germany has made reparations to Holocaust victims in Israel. There have been some reparations given to victims of the internment camps during World War II to the Japanese American citizens who were intern. So there's nothing necessarily radical about the idea of reparations. Obviously, it would be a bafflingly comprehensive thing to attempt to do in terms of the history of slavery, Jim Crow, discrimination, you know, all of these discriminatory laws that were built into the federal government of the United States. I mean, it's racism has been so interwoven in the fabric of American law that it's hard to know exactly what it means. Right. But, but more you know, more broadly here, yeah. the, you know, the fundamental question is you've got a fired up progressive base in the Democratic Party. Yes. That is really looking for radical changes and the concern. You've got a fired up they, progressive base that just gave us the majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. Although from many from districts in which, you know, centrists won, including yes, uh, neighboring Virginia right here. Yeah. So it's not all 
Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. But let me tell you something are, about this. I, who, I'm going to tell you a story about, you. about centrism, okay? Because I consider yeah. myself a centrist. When I first ran for the state senate, I said I wanted to abolish the death penalty, pass marriage equality. I want to restore voting rights to the former prisoners. I wanted to pass the toughest gun safety law in America, in Maryland, all this stuff. And a woman came up to me after my speech and she said, great speech. I loved your speech. But one thing, take out all that stuff in there about gay marriage. This is in 2006. She said, it's never going to happen. And it makes you sound like you're really extreme, like you're not in the political center. Even mm -hmm. the gay candidates don't talk about it. And I sort of swallowed hard because I didn't have a lot of supporters when I first got started. And I said, you know, I appreciate you're telling me that, but it makes me realize it's not my ambition to be in the political center, which blows around with the wind. It's my ambition to be in the moral center. That's why I'm a Democrat. That's why I'm a progressive, because my vision is that we go out and we bring the political center into the moral center. And that has been basically the charting of progress in America. Marriage equality is now considered like the glue of the Democratic Party. Everybody is for it. And when I first ran for office in 2006, that was only, what, 13 years ago, people were saying it's taboo. You can't even mention it. That's the history of change in our country. So if you go out looking for the political center and stick your finger up to the wind, you're going to get run over at some point. Go look for the moral center. Try to find what's right and do that. And I think that's when things work for Democrats. Who's your candidate for president? I don't have a candidate for president because I like so many of them. And like most of my colleagues and most of my constituents, I'm feeling let's let this thing sort itself out. I mean, it's a roller derby with dozens of candidates and let's see who's really got something to say. But I'm airing very much to the pragmatic side of the equation and saying, let's see who we really think is going to win. One person who hasn't got in it yet, who I'm very drawn to is the U.S. Senator from Ohio, Sherrod mm -hmm. Brown, Brown yeah, right. because we've never won without Ohio. And that's a real and, and Trump can't win without and he's reelected without Trump can't win without Ohio and he's a rare progressive Democrat who knows how to appeal to white working class voters. Yeah, he's got a certain power there. And now, I don't know how rare that person is anymore. I, I think you know the white working class support that Donald Trump had when he ran has been melting away with the government shutdown and with his ridiculous trade policies and you know a lot of stuff that's been taking place that's really been hurting working people. And the unions are very strong against Donald Trump and the right wing in the country. So I think that Trump, to the extent he runs again, has a base in the extreme religious right and in wealthier people who like the fact that his policies have been all about bestowing billions and billions of dollars on the wealthiest groups and corporations in the country. Uh, well, on that note, I should point out before we let the congressman go that I think the last president from Ohio was Warren Harding. So I don't know if that's the role model that you'd you'd want for uh, yeah. your, uh, well, your nominee. By the way, that wasn't... Not to compare Sherwood <laughs> Brown to... Uh, uh, it was not an endorsement. I'm not making an endorsement, but I think yeah. there's still very interesting people right. out there. I've got, I've got great friends in the House who are running or may run. I was just <laughs> talking to Tulsi Gabbard. John Delaney's got the district next to me. Beto might run for president. So we, we've got enormous talent and incredible energy on our side of the political spectrum, and I'm really excited about it. All right. Congressman, thanks for uh, joining us on Skullduggery, and we hope to have you back. Totally my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks. Congressman. Thanks to Congressman Jamie Raskin for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. 
Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod, And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.